My name is Jared Ortiz. I teach Catholic theology in the religion department and I'm the director of the St. Benedict Forum. St. Benedict Forum is the Catholic intellectual and spiritual institute that serves Hope College. We are a ministry of the local Catholic Church, St. Francis de Sales, and our mission is to bring a distinctively Catholic voice to the Hope College conversation. We are very pleased to bring Anthony Esselin to Hope College today, and I'd like to thank all of our co-sponsors who made this event possible. Hope College's religion department, the English department, and the philosophy department. Thanks to Curtis Grunler and the general education program and the cultural heritage program. Thank you to Jonathan Haygood, the senior seminar program. Thank you to Sarah Stell and the Clasis program and the markets and morality program. And last but not least, the Our Sunday Visitor Institute. So lots of people very excited that uh, you're here. Anthony Esselin teaches medieval literature and theology, Renaissance literature, and the development of Western civilization at Providence College in Rhode Island. I first came across the work of Professor Esselin when I read his lovely reflections on scripture in the Catholic devotional magazine, Magnifica. Since then, my appreciation of his work, its breadth, and depth has only deepened. Dr. Esselin is a prolific writer, an astute observer of culture, and a man who thinks and cares deeply about the true, the good, and the beautiful. But more than this, he thinks and cares deeply about the hearts and minds of people, especially young people, whose ability to engage the true, the good, and the beautiful is often compromised by an increasingly poisonous popular culture. Dr. Esselin wrote about this in two recent books, 10 Ways to Destroy the Imagination of Your Child, and if that's not enough destruction, 10 Ways to Destroy the Humanity of Your Child. Dr. Esselin is senior editor of Touchstone, an ecumenical journal of mere Christianity. He is translator of Lucretius's On the Nature of Things and Dante's Divine Comedy. He's the author of numerous other books, some of which are on sale in the back. This afternoon, Dr. Esselin will speak on the liberal arts and the Christian college in a post-Christian world. Please help me welcome Anthony Esselin. Thank you, Professor Ortiz. Thank you all for coming out. Although, not much out there to uh, compete with me today, kind of a gray day. Um, I, uh, I'd like to begin today by recalling one of the first days of classes I had. Uh, this would have been not this year, but last year. Um, I always love the first day of class. I, I always teach freshmen. I've been teaching freshmen for the better part of my 20 years years, 26 years now at Providence College. And um, freshmen are wonderful because they, they, they don't have the mildew growing on their souls that sophomores have. Sophomores, with their worldly wisdom, they've seen it all, they know it all, and uh, they're ready to disabuse the freshmen of any notions they might have that college is going to be a great experience. Um, for those freshmen who come to me on that first day of class, They've got bright eyes. They, they, they almost make me blush 
the deference that they pay to their first professors. They won't be paying that deference to their professors at the beginning of junior year, but beginning of freshman year they do. And we do well to deserve that. Um, some students, in the last couple of years, maybe it's a change in our student body, I don't know, but they've gone so far as to email me before they've even met me to ask if there's any required reading for the first day of class. I don't even know, I don't even remember what my syllabus is for the first week of class. Uh, and there's, do we have any required reading? Um, one young man uh, last year didn't receive my message instructing them on which book to bring to class, so he brought all eight of our textbooks just to make sure that he got the right one. Must have weighed 20 pounds, the stack of books. And somehow he still managed to, to miss the one that I wanted them to bring, the, <laughs> the English poems of George Herbert, but the kid was a pretty sturdy fellow. I, I don't think that the weight slowed down his stride. Certainly didn't dampen his enthusiasm or suppress his smile. Good kid. Why do they look up to us, these freshmen? They're afraid that what they will encounter in college will be entirely new, foreign, maybe threatening. Yet the most damning judgment that the sophomore can make is that college, after all, and here's, here's a terrible thing that no professor wants to hear, college was no different from high school. For those of you who may be homeschooled, high school is that four-year asylum um, where they put uh, teenagers because we have no idea what else to do with them. Um, that's because college, and it's a disappointment, right? Because college still signifies for them a higher calling, an entry into the temple precincts, somewhere in the reflected light streaming from the Holy of Holies. I think that even secular students have some of this expectation. College is or should be where the brightest people dwell. Uh, we won't get into whether that's accurate. Um, wholly devoted to the relatively unremunerative pursuit of the truth, like the monks of old. And you can still there see their names, the idea of the college, their names, if not engraved upon their tombs in the campus cemetery, at least displayed on a plaque somewhere, maybe on a nice oak bench, reading, in memoriam, Dr. Merrill Palgrave from his devoted students, and gladly would he learn and gladly teach. That, by the way, is a quote from Chaucer, and anybody who's from the University of Michigan, Chaucer was a medieval English poet. <laughs> you laugh, but I am now meeting students, okay? Honor students, too, my freshmen, who, um, uh, whose experience of English literature in high schools has been so stripped down that they do not even recognize the names of such English poets as Milton and Tennyson and Wordsworth and even Chaucer. It's not that they haven't read him in high school. They never heard him. Oh gosh, they want to think well of us, these students. They come to find out, sometimes with delight, sometimes with disillusionment or dismay, that we're human beings after all. This man here hasn't even read the textbook he's signed. He wastes his students' time and money. This is true. This is Professor at my school, 
by jawing all the time about contemporary politics, which he understands no better than they do. He's a psychology professor. He just wastes the students' time. That woman there should have been a drill sergeant in the Imperial Japanese Army. She once had a heart. And it did beat warmly and tenderly, but a certain kind of cryogenics, which I needn't mention, took care of it. I'm thinking of another professor, high school. Students may learn amiable things about us, too, that we have spouses and children. That always strikes them as a surprise. Um, that we favor the Red Sox that I teach in New England, or the Cardinals, as I do. Any Cardinals? I've been since I was a little child. Uh, that we like bluegrass or swing or barbershop quartets, that we can play the fiddle or fish for marlin or build tree houses, all that is to the good. Yet even so, the student write back, writes back to his professor from 20 years before uh, in the same way that a young minister might write back to his mentor in the seminary. That's not an accidental similarity. It's of the essence. And in some way, the students know it even though absolutely nothing they are taught in any public school or in most private schools can have put the idea into their minds. And this brings me to a puzzle. It's the subject of my talk to you today. Um, and now I'm going to be a little controversial, but you've no doubt heard of something called the Common um, Core Curriculum. And I hear that you're talking about uh, what to do with the curriculum here at uh, Hope College. Uh, the Common Core Curriculum, if you haven't uh, heard about it, is the Fifth Horseman of the Apocalypse, <laughs> which has been visited upon the sons of men for their folly and wickedness. Um, this one is not a red horse or even a pale horse, but a coughing, broken, winded old nag. <laughs> the worst of the old improvements in education, gussied up with techno lingo, a lot of money, and made to trot by the reliable methods of financial carrots and bureaucratic sticks. Now, I'm not here to talk centrally about that thing. You not welcome me into your midst so that I might inform you, in case you didn't know, that sewers have an uneasy smell, or that the most dangerous thing in the world is a theorist with one idea, a lot of money, and the power of the state behind him. I bring up the Common Core because of the name, or rather the advertising tag, that's what it is, alliteration and all. Reminds me of um, George Orwell's Ministry of Truth, or Minitruth, to use the Newspeak advertising lingo. Minitruth is um, where evidence of events goes down the memory hole to disappear forever. Or the Ministry of Love, Minilove, um, with an L-U-V, terrifying underground hole where you go to have your spirit crushed to betray your friends, and to truckle to the boundless ambition of Big Brother. It reminds me of that because there is no core in that common core, only a hole where a core should have been. There is, to be specific, no heritage of songs that touch the heart, no heroes to make the eyes grow wide with wonder, no vision of a celestial city to rouse us from our sloth and to say, come, let us take up the journey. There's nothing there. What can it mean to have a core? 
Does it have something to do with what my bright-eyed freshmen expect from me? Is it like entering into a holy place? And if it is like that, where is that place? Is it set apart from the world in splendid isolation? What is it? A core. The promoters of the common core and of so much in our colleges that is misguided, even if well intended. For the promoters of that common core, the one thing needful is the imparting of so-called skills. We've suffered this at my college. We uh, revised our curriculum a few years ago, much to the detriment of the curriculum and to the annoyance of the students because now they have to have exhibited their acquisition of a, a, a list of skills, for instance, oral proficiency, um, which had nothing to do with toothpaste and toothbrush, but apparently <laughs> speaking in public. Um, I am so glad that this happened after my days in college. Uh, I was extremely shy when I was in college. I would have hated any such nonsense as oral proficiency, test of it. Um, you come upon these things, you learn them by doing them. There's, anyway, don't get inspired. Um, these skills include writing a formal essay that descends upon the mind of the reader like a chloroform towel on the nose and mouth, or mastering a nine-step algorithm for solving a problem in higher arithmetic without the too dangerous assistance of intuition or strong memory. The promoters think of education as essentially technological for doing things that are precisely delineated. It's an education for clever robots. Doesn't even rise to the aspirations of our good friend of happy memory, the Tin Man, who sings, and I'm not gonna sing it, I'd be tender, I'd be gentle, and awful sentimental regarding love and art. I'd be friends with the sparrows and the boy who shoots the arrows if I only had a heart. A core, if it is to be a core, not just a small collection of courses with a name like those that are used to sell toothpaste, a core must be a heart. And if it is a heart for beings with hearts must reach into the depths of those hearts. And the thesis of my is that not only can a classical Christian education be such a heart, it is the only thing remaining that can be. Nothing else remains. And see why I'd like to take a cue from a recent article in a Catholic journal called Logos. This is an article on uh, St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, whom we otherwise know as Edith Stein, St. Edith Stein, and her philosophy of the soul. Edith Stein um, was the most brilliant student of the German phenomenologist sorry, Edmund Husserl. Husserl was a pious man, uh, Lutheran, I believe, though maybe not the most orthodox of Lutherans. Husserl set himself the task of demonstrating the utter inadequacy of materialism to explain the primary facts of human experience. Husserl understood that what a camera does when it registers on film the form of my dog, Jasper, and what I do when I look upon him wagging his friendly tail or jumping through a hoop or ringing the bell, the 60 other things he does, there are quite different kinds of things. 
And it is not that the brain is a photographic plate for the different characters or caliber. It is that I, the human being, have an experience which the camera does not have. The camera registers whatever light there is for it to register. I do less than that and far more and far other. I can, said Husserl, bracket the pet dog, thinking of him and him alone, entering into a kind of contemplative relationship. The camera does not see, it registers. The animal sees, I can behold. If I do behold, then the dog Jasper becomes in a way interior to me. He's, as we say, a part of my life. He enters my heart. And that Edith Stein, that heart, she identifies with the very soul, the inner life of my being in all of its bewildering variety and its mysterious depths. Now, it follows as a matter of course. If you do not believe in the existence of that heart, if you say, well, then that's just sentimentality, that life-giving soul, then you cannot really conceive of a curriculum that will nourish it. You will hear the phrase, education for the heart, and you think, perhaps, means the instilling of pleasant sentiments and a habit of giving to the united way. Your heart will be on the skin and its calluses. But what if you do believe in the heart? What would a core moment of education look like? who might take a lesson from a young Florentine that I've been talking about this weekend. And I swear I see his portrait in the chapel up there as the prophet Ezekiel. Um, it's the guy named Dante. Uh, I don't know what Dante is doing in the Calvinist chapel up there. But he is. So there is the Dante, the young Florentine now. He's walking down one of the streets of his city when a lovely young woman approaches him from the other direction. He had seen her as a girl when he was a boy nine years before, and, and that first sight had disturbed him profoundly and raised his mind to noble things. For he says, from that time on, love governed my soul, signore già, l'anima mia. Literally, love was the signore, the lord of my soul, which became immediately devoted to him, he says. Now he sees her again, and, quote, she turned her eyes to where I was standing faint-hearted, and with that indescribable graciousness for which today she is rewarded in the eternal life, she greeted me so miraculously that I seemed at that moment to behold the entire range of possible bliss. Tutti i termini della beatitudine. He then retires to his chamber, deeply shaken, and he has a dream. He sees a lordly figure carrying that same lady in his arms, wrapped only in a crimson cloth. And this divine being says to the youth, Ego Dominus Tuus, I am your lord. In one hand, he holds something that appeared to be in flames, and he said, Vide, cor, tum, behold your heart. When the lady at last awakes, this lordly figure, this mysterious allegory of love, gives her the heart to eat, which she does timidly. Then he weeps bitterly, folds the lady in his arms, and ascends to the heavens. 
the dreamer wakes and describes his dream in a sonnet, the first poem of love he has ever written. We're speaking of the young Dante and Beatrice here in the account of their meeting, which Dante gives us in La Vita Nuova, which might be translated as youth or the new life or the novel life, that is, the strange and wondrous life. All those meanings are to be heard. Now, um, I had a conversation recently with somebody on the telephone, a very nice fellow. He wanted to interview me for a radio show on Dante. And uh, yet, this man seemed not to have the slightest idea about the Christian faith that Dante believed in. He wasn't hostile, he was just simply ignorant. He wanted to talk about what for me is the least interesting feature of Dante's work, uh, the, uh, the Divine Comedy. The, the least interesting feature for me is the conflict between the Guelphs and the Ghibellines. How many people here are saying, how could you possibly say that about the Guelphs? I have dreams about the Guelphs and the Ghibellines. <laughs> I, I have baseball cards, I, I have Ghibelline cards. You know what it's like? It's like, I imagine um, if CNN and uh, our other uh, news outlets, which are perfectly useless, all of them, all of them, right across the political spectrum, but if they had been present uh, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, okay, what would they have asked Lazarus? Is he going to vote Pharisee or Sadducee? <laughs> Someone is raised from the dead before your very eyes, and you are asking a question about what influence it will have on electoral politics. You have to be out of your mind. Um, well, uh, he, he, I didn't say he was, I don't want to say he was out of his mind, but there's just something missing here. He, he, as for Beatrice, he asked me whether the girl was really a kind of Swedish tart. Okay. Um, I don't know what the lingo is here in Michigan, uh, a Swedish hooker. No, <laughs> there you have it. Beatrice reduced to somebody you might see on the cover of People magazine. Uh, Beatrice says, what's, what's the Armenian harlot's name? Um, you know what I'm talking about. The one who marries people and divorces them five minutes later. And, uh, yes, that's it. That's right. uh, well, he, he didn't mean to be flippant. He did not. And nor was it that he thought that old literature was worthless. He didn't think that. It's that we have abandoned so much of our cultural heritage that even people who want to respect it might as well be staring at Chinese pictograms. There was a time when you could approach that heritage. You could make some sense of Dante or Shakespeare or Milton without the faith that brings your heart to life. You would know about the word made flesh even if you spent most of your time denying it. That day has passed. Look what my collar could not sense. Loka can find no place in his intellectual and spiritual universe. Something has happened to Dante that does more than add to a stock of youthful experiences. It's not so much something that happens during his life, but something that raises him up to a new and more momentous manner of life in comparison with which the old life has seemed little better than sleepwalking. Here begins his instruction in love, by love. 
does not merely say that this love made him happy. And in fact, for most of Levi Tanwova, the youth is not happy. He is confused, frustrated, self-absorbed, and sorrowful. And Beatrice herself, in the course of Levi Tanwova, will die. He says that her greetings seem to open out to his sight the farthest reaches of beatitude in a blessedness, the bliss that comes to us wholly as a gift, as when Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now it is impossible to reduce this experience to an event that can be logged, tagged, interpreted, and set on a shelf. Cannot be reduced to a footnote in that ever-burning conflict between Guelphs and Ghibellines or golfers and goblins or whatever. It is not a turn in a political struggle. Dante gains no, and I detest this word, information from it. The profound encounter of one person with another person is not a datum like a chemical formula for salt, formula that never had any savor to lose. Core ad core loquitur, John Henry Newman reminds us. Heart speaks to heart, was his motto. Only a heart can speak to a heart, and that is what hearts are for. Advanced in years, Dante will tell us that for a while during his life, he no longer heard the voice of the heart. I was so full of sleep, he says at the beginning of Inferno, when first I left the way of truth behind. His recovery of the way in the Divine Comedy is his learning to hear again that voice, to have a heart again, and again, not me, sentimentality. The learning of love, then, is profoundly interior to the person. It constitutes the person to whom it is interior. It is the king and center of all hearts. It is not I, says St. Paul, but Christ who lives in me. And because it is Christ, and only because it is Christ, it is that St. Paul most himself when he is most Christ's. And so to Dante is most himself in the Divine Comedy when he most belongs to Beatrice, who always directs his attention to Christ. We see this confidence when in Paradise he is struck blind momentarily, more than momentarily, for a good long section of a whole canto by the brilliance of the light of St. John the Apostle. John advises him not to be troubled, because the eyes of Beatrice will clear his eyes, just as the hand of Ananias, he says, cleared the eyes of St. Paul when he was struck blind on the road to Damascus. Meanwhile, John asks Dante to declare the final aim and fulfillment of his desires. Dante's met the three great apostles, Peter, James, and John, they have grilled him on the theological virtues, Peter on faith, uh, James on hope, and now John on love. What do you have as your aim? What is the fulfillment of your desires? What do you love, says Dante? I'm not going to worry about being blind. Let my healing come fast or slow, as she may please, to heal my vision. Once the gate she entered with a fire that ever burns within my heart. The good that brings this court its peace is Alpha and Omega, 
of all that with gentle or insistent voice is read to me by my instructor, love. My teacher, my instructor is love. In the, in the purgatory, there's a, another very poignant moment where uh, a rival poet meets Dante. He says, you met Dante writing those verses, the new, the sweet new style of verses. Is that you? That, that wrote that poem that begins, Ladies Who Have Intelligence of Love. And Dante says, yeah, that, that was me. I'm one who takes the pen when love breathes wisdom into me and go finding the signs for what he speaks within. I am an amanuensis of love. This instruction is not utilitarian. We can't say without absurdity, contradiction, I will love you so that I may get on in the world. It makes no sense. You, you, I don't know if you have prep schools in Michigan. We have plenty of prep schools in New England. Um, I imagine someone named Biff uh, going up to a young lady and saying, uh, I, I think I have decided to fall in love with you because it will uh, further my worldly prospects. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. It, it doesn't rise to the level of a lie. Um, love is both the instructor and the instruction. And it transforms the one who is instructed. It blinds and it opens the eyes. It pitches the lover down, raises him up, makes the lover stagger with ignorance, and endows him with wisdom and the joy of beauty. Now, once upon a time, as I've suggested, you didn't have to be a Christian to understand this. The pagan Plato understood it. When he has Socrates tell the lad Phaedrus that the greatest blessings come by madness, indeed of madness that is heaven sent. For in the madness born of love, the soul stretches her wings, and the charioteer with his team of horses one noble and a lover of truth, the other wayward and a pursuer of physical appetite. The charioteer struggles to rise again to those heights whence he once glimpsed true and immortal beauty. This madness is whole and sane. But the Christian faith baptized the best and holiest of that pagan wisdom. And there is now simply no going back behind Jesus. And why would one try? Look at the wealth of thought about love and personality that we have inherited. Listen, for instance, to Edmund Spencer, a Protestant poet in the, in the Elizabethan era in England, writing this sonnet in his Amoretti in honor of his beloved Elizabeth, whom he was to marry. It's unique in the history of uh, love sonnet sequences. The girl actually says yes, and they get married. And this is celebrated in the poem. Somebody might want to ask me about that. This is amazing, amazing. This sonnet, listen. The sovereign beauty which I do admire. Witness the world how worthy to be praised. The light whereof hath kindled heavenly fire in my frail spirit. By her from baseness raised. That being now with her huge brightness dazed. Base thing I can no more endure to view. But looking on her, still I stand amazed at wondrous sight of so celestial hue. So when my tongue would speak her praises due, it stop it is with thought's astonishment. And when my pen would write her titles true, it ravished is with fancy's wonderment. Yet in my heart I then both speak and write the wonder that my wit cannot indite. 
Think of that. His spirit, frail by its fallen nature, is raised from baseness by her chaste love. Raised not to a competency in marketable skills, but to a vision so brilliant that he can neither gaze upon it steadily nor speak about it comfortably. His tongue is stopped. His pen is ravished with its inner meaning there of rapture, of being swept up involuntarily into the heaven of heavens. But the experience of love does indeed make him wise. Not voluble, not presumptuous, not prying into all things hidden, but wise. And where then does he write? To whom then does he speak? In my heart, he says, I then both speak and write the wonder that my wit cannot indite. It is a wonder that penetrates to the core of his being. Only a classical Christian education now can bring young people to the threshold of the love that threatens to batter down the gates of the heart. One reason is simple enough. There are no more pagans like Plato among us. The pagans and sub-pagans at Yale are not reading St. Augustine. While the ardent Christians at Patrick Henry College, Biola University, Christendom College, are reading him as they are learning Latin and ancient Greek and reading Dante and Thomas Aquinas and Spencer and Milton. In other words, that core, odd core education that Newman enjoyed has its roots in the educational habits of the medieval schools, which in point of fact preserved and purified the best of what the wisest pagans had to offer. There is nothing left now except cold steel and fiberglass teaching machines that inhuman thing. And architecture reflects, I think, what people believe goes on in the places that they build. If, if you are building schools that cannot be distinguished from a half mile away, uh, uh, whether they are schools or factories or prisons, um, then, uh, well, form follows, uh, function, form follows function. I mean, they might be building schools that look like prisons or look like factories because in fact they serve some of the same purposes. There's nothing left except those and the Christian school. It's either John Dewey, Bill Gates, and Henry Ford, or it's Thomas Aquinas, Michelangelo, John Milton, George Herbert. Matthew Arnold with his class, uh, cultural classicism is dead. And this consideration brings me to another way to think of the heart or the soul as the heart, as Edith Stein puts it. A heart is a heart because it is in the center. But to be this in the center of a human being is not the same as being the center of a robot. The center is not a matter of location or of averages, but of primacy, power. Hence the old English word herta, denoted also will, mind, memory, courage, desire, spirit. We still have some of this in English. That person is a person of great heart. We don't mean aerobic capacity. Just as the heart pumps blood to all of the organs, even to the tiniest cell upon the tip of the finger, so the heart, that heart of the human being, gives life to all that he is, all that he sees and does, all that he comes to know and to cherish. The heart is not for a hand alone or an eye. And human love is not for something instrumental alone or for only some cordoned off portion of what exists. 
because it is a heart. It is for all that God has made. So the heart, the wise soul, not the cramped mind of the calculator of advantages, the heart can sing in praise of all things, not that the things can be used, but simply that they are, and they are glorious. I think here are the wonderful hymn of victory, sung by the angels at the end of C.S. Lewis's Paralander. Anybody read that book, Paralander? Okay. It's the joyous cry of hearts that embrace things in both their individual glory and in the beauty they confer as parts of an integral whole. For the soul ravished in love, where is the center? Where is it not? So sing the angels. That dust itself which is scattered so rare in heaven, where of all worlds and the bodies that are not worlds are made, is at the center. It waits not till created eyes have seen it or hands handled it, to be in itself the strength and splendor of God. Only the least part has served or ever shall a beast, a man, or a god, angels. But always and beyond all distances, before they came and after they are gone, and where they never come, it is what it is, and utters the heart of the Holy One with its own voice. It is farthest from him of all things, for it has no life, nor sense, nor reason. It is nearest to him of all things, for without intervening soul, as sparks fly out of fire, he utters in each grain of it the unmixed image of his energy. Each grain, if it spoke, would say, I am at the center, for me all things were made. Let no mouth open to gainsay it. Blessed be he. The hair of a man is but an excrescence to people who aspire to see no more than parts, and dimly at that. For God who is loved, those hairs are so precious as to be counted and remembered. The stray particles of matter in the vast spaces between the worlds to people who reduce all things to quantity mean nothing, but God who is loved is present in his plenitude in the smallest chambers of their invisible and inconceivable depths. A boy walks down a path in the woods whistling a tune and slapping his thigh to call the dog over from snuffling in the brambles to people who reduce all human things to counters on a banker's desk or toy soldiers in a field of historical development. To them, the boy is beneath notice. But God took flesh and dwelt among us and was a boy. And the look in that boy's eyes and the words that came from his lips amazed the most learned in the temple. A young husband presses the hand of his wife as they sit quietly together, a third one among them yet unfelt and unknown. The demographer will find only a cause to make one more tally on his rolls. The two of them go to church on Sunday to pray together, the modern professor and ideologue, without the courage of his nihilism, shrugs and says, if that's how they want to spend their spare time, it's nothing to him. What I'm trying to get at here is what Newman affir affirmed in the idea of a university. And this may be most controversial, I'm going to say now. But I have seen it. Without theology, says Newman, the science that springs from God's revelation to man, the one thing that by its very nature bears upon all other things, Without that, the individual objects of study are left radically incomplete and unconnected with one another. A friend of mine, a man named Reinhard Hütter, a theology professor at Duke, says that the university ceases to be a university but a polytechnicon. 
Just as there is no core in the common core, so there is nothing unitive in the modern university and nothing to unite a public in the public school. We're left with the educational analog of those expensive suburbs springing up everywhere in the vicinity of bureaucracies flush with money. Subdivision here, subdivision there, mansion here, mansion there, without any shared history or sense of place or objects of devotion. No songs to sing, and no one merely being there to whom you might sing a song. In our universities that are not unitive, the scientist does not think of Shakespeare. In many schools where the disintegration is far advanced, the English professor does not think of Shakespeare. The history professor does not think of the rings of Saturn. The sociology professor does not think of the deep blue heavens painted by Fra Angelico. The art history professor has never heard the name of Christopher Dawson. One of my colleagues, a feminist professor of modern literature who hails from Finland, never heard the name of Sigrid Onset, 20th century Norwegian. I know that Norway is not Finland, but still. And Onset, to my mind, is the greatest woman novelist who ever lived. Nothing unites the university faculty, and that's why they fall so easily to the base conformity of the politically correct. My students now tell me that poetry has joined grammar, the ancient languages, geography, and most of Western history in the dumpsters behind our elementary schools and high schools. As I said before, I used to meet some students who had never read Milton. I now regularly meet students, many of them, even honor students who don't even recognize the name of the greatest of English poets if you consider Shakespeare a playwright, not a poet. The Christian, however, should lay claim to our long history of embracing all areas of study, not as individual beasts in a corral, not as items on a kind of Chinese menu, a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but as beautiful and mysterious parts of a comprehensive whole. Think again of the difference between a human being, that is a person and a machine. There is no heart to my truck. There's an engine powers the drivetrain, which is connected to the axles, which turn the wheels. But the relationship between these parts is merely contiguous. The engine is not, so to speak, in the axle. It's not, certainly not in the wiper blades, the lights, the seats, the hood, the fender. The machine is an array of pieces working by contiguity and efficient causality. But I am not so. My heart is not only behind my ribs, it is in my hands. My thoughts are in my heart. They often make my heart race, or they can soothe it and make it beat more gently. The craftsman's imagination is in his fingers. The experience of his fingers is in his mind. All the things he sees are in his mind. Things he has never seen are there, and never will see. A centaur, the square root of two, the quality of mercy. What then must it be to educate such a being, a being with a heart? It cannot be piecemeal, because he is not a sum of pieces. It cannot be merely utilitarian, because he is more than the product of his tools. It cannot exclude from consideration such things as his eternal destiny and the nature of God, because he has that eternal destiny whether he likes it or not. And God is, and calls him on his pilgrimage. The education of a being with a core, a heart, life-giving principle must be connatural with it. 
that education must itself be like a heart that cherishes all things in its deep interior life and that sends blood and life forth to all the extremities. For the Christian, that means that we establish all things in Christ, through whom all things were made. For the Christian educator, it means that it must become second nature to us to bring together our two scattered disciplines and to shepherd them all under the fostering care of the queen of the sciences, the truly alma mater of the soul, which is theology. Does not mean that theologians tell the scientists what the ions are doing, or they tell the English teacher what Shakespeare meant by something rich and strange. Does mean, however, that students and teachers both see themselves as related to one another and as embarking on a common pilgrimage, and that each in his own way they understand that they derive their meaning and their life from a truth that transcends them all, and that alone can unite them precisely because it transcends them. In practical terms, it means they speak to one another and learn from one another. But it has to be even more than that, you see. Maybe now I'm saying the most controversial thing. This God is not a principle. He's not a, it's not a mere theorem. He's not a solution to an equation. He's a person. The person through whom and in whom we ourselves derive whatever personhood we possess. A truly Christian education must derive its vitality then from its address to that person, that is, from common prayer. We don't pray instrumentally to accomplish a useful unity with one another. That would be backwards. We pray to God in one another's company, with one another, for one another. And that is the thing that unites us, just as love for a beautiful work of art or music might unite people who otherwise would have nothing to say to each other. There's no human education, really, unless it is open to God. There is no coherent education unless it appeals to the heart of man. And there can be no Christian education unless the disciplines do reflect upon one another, deriving their worth and their unity from the consideration of what God has done. But who is the theologian? Theologian is he who prays, says one of the Greek fathers. That is what professors and students should do also as the highest expression of their enterprise in teaching and in learning. Was it an accident, after all, that the greatest of the pagan uh, 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 sages were preserved by men of prayer in Benedictine monasteries? It was an accident that the greatest universities in this side, this hemisphere of the earth, Harvard and Yale and Princeton, were originally founded by men of prayer for men of prayer? Is that an accident? The leaders of the secular schools, those dead places, they can scoff if they wish. I don't care. What can a machine know about prayer and love and contemplative longing in a community? That is the core of our core. And nothing else will suffice. Thank you. Now, um, I, I am told that uh, uh, this is your opportunity to throw questions at me, and, uh, and, and since I'm Italian, if you don't ask me questions, <laughs> I don't even have to say, well, I don't have to do something with my hands. 
So, um, questions? Students? Yes, sir. A secular college or a uh, um, public school? College. Um, you know, the, in some ways, the, the vast stretches of desert ignorance that are out there can work to your advantage. So let's suppose you're teaching a course in, um, I don't know, 18th century English history. Right? Um, since your colleagues will be largely ignorant of uh, 18th century, 18th century uh, American spiritual revivals, right? they won't know much about Whitefield and Wesley. You can include Wesleyan hymns, right? Um, they won't know what they are. Uh, the, the, you might as well be uh, exhibiting uh, 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 some flora and fauna from Mars, okay? <laughs> Um, you might uh, you might import into your class an English novel, um, Joseph Andrews, for instance, by Henry Fielding. Wonderful novel. Yeah, uh, just it's a rollicking comic uh, masterpiece, and its hero is the great and good Low Church um, Parson Abraham Adams, one of the greatest characters in English literary history. Um, a kind of English Don Quixote in miniature. And why is there darkness descending upon us? <laughs> <laughs> the line of Pope, the, the last line of the Dunciad shows, I mean, universal darkness covers all, buries all. Um, that you can do, you know? I mean, there are all kinds of things that you can do to ensure that, at least in your class, the students will be getting something of a truly human education. And um, it will be hard for your colleagues to scoff at this in the first instance because they simply don't know what those things are. Okay? And um, then you can also, you can also at the same time say, well, um, I'm being interdisciplinary. <laughs> and as soon as you throw that word there, it's that, that right now in, in faculty arguments is the ace of trumps. You know? uh, well, what are you really doing there with those Wesleyan hymns and uh, uh, Joseph Andrews? And you say, interdisciplinary. <laughs> so you're an Italian, you play the card like this. <laughs> uh, right? Um, there's, there, it, it might have been harder to do that, actually, 15 years ago, because more people would have been on to you. But now, I mean, everybody's, everybody's specialization is so narrow in a lot of the colleges that, um, you know, you might as well be, you might as well be talking in, uh, Sanskrit, um, so you, you get away with things that way. Does that, does that possibly help you? And, and your students will love you for it. Your students love that kind of thing. Yeah, let me, let me suggest to you that um, um, wonders can be wrought for such students with uh, uh, experiences with beautiful things, okay? Um, the beautiful thing can be a short work of music, it can be a great painting, it can be a, a short poem, 
um, the, the, the students that come to us are starved for beauty. I, I have now pretty much decided that the, it, this is true for most public schools and for many, many, many private schools also. The student's experience of literature is 20th century, um, 20th century literature to cut your throat by. Okay? Basically, dystopian literature of the 20th century and vampires. Right? We go from dystopias to vampires. And a couple of Shakespeare plays out of context as a kind of inoculation to make sure that students never have any never catch the disease for Shakespeare, never have any love for Shakespeare ever again. Um, so they really don't have much interaction with what is genuinely beautiful. And then you, you, you introduce them to a few things. You never know where that's going to lead. And that doesn't take a lot of time. And the experience can be immediate and overwhelming. It also, um, uh, yeah, it just, it, it, <laughs> the experience of beauty uh, so transcends the categories of contemporary political discourse. I mean, it just, it renders them the, uh, you know, eunuchs that they are. I mean, they're just a, they're nothing to fight. See, you have all this politics over here, but I, I, have, um, I have a painting by J.M.W. Turner. <laughs> you know, um, a student of mine once said to me, he converted and became a, a Christian at, at our school, was baptized as a junior. He came as, in as a card-carrying skeptic, but his one weakness, his vulnerability, was that he had, he had contracted a disease in college. It was a love of the poetry of Milton. The teacher told him, Eric, you're bored in class, go to the library. Well, what shall I read? Well, what, I think you will really like Paradise Lost. Why don't you read Paradise Lost? And um, when I asked him, you know, what was it that did it? Why, why, how did you come to this? He said, well, you guys have all the ammunition. You, you have Dante and Virgil. You have Shakespeare. You have Cervantes. You have Chaucer. Um, you have Michelangelo. You, you have Puccini. You have Palestrina. We have nothing. Um, he, he's now studying Renaissance literature at Catholic U so that he can take my job when I retire, <laughs> which I want him to do. I want him to do. Um, yes, sir. I like to use the image of, of, of seedlings and sprouts breaking through the blacktop, um, and that in the end, the good money will always be on the green things and not on the blacktop. I think that the blacktop is crumbling all over the place. Now, it may be that you still have vast stretches of blacktop. As a quantity, maybe it's still 93% blacktop. But you know, if you've got 7% grass and 93% blacktop, that blacktop is not long for this world. Um, the, I, 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 I see here and there that well-established Christian schools who never lost their Christian identity are moving towards classical curriculum. They're doing that at Gordon College up in, uh, up in Boston. This is, I mean, this is a wondrous thing to behold. Some Catholic schools are saying, you know, maybe, maybe, we, maybe that was a stupid thing that we did that would throw away our curriculum. And they're making hesitant steps to recover some. 
Um, we never threw ours away. We've got a Western Civilization program that uh, takes two years. It's required of every student. For the honors students, it's five hours a week for two years, taught by teams of professors. There's nothing like it in the country, I think. Um, but in all other places, all, all, the, all the Catholic and, and Christian schools that have been founded in, let's say, the last 30 years, they, they're all um, what we would call classical. And um, then there are these little startup high schools and grade schools all over the place. Um, they're going in that direction. Um, the school in Grand Rapids, Sacred Heart School, has gone from, I've been told, 65 students to 230 in three years. Um, how has it done that? Well, not by higher, not by bringing in a bunch of educational consultants, but by common prayer every day, significant common prayer, and uh, classical curriculum. And people flock to it because they actually deep down like to be wise and to be surrounded with beauty. You know? I mean, if you want to be surrounded with ugliness, just... You watch TV or you take a walk down the main street of any American city and you get your fill of ugliness there. But uh, to actually be in the midst of beautiful things. Um, so I am very hopeful. Now, I mean, in terms of absolute numbers, these places are still uh, very much in the minority. But it's where all the action is. Um, the, others, the others are shrinking. And they deserve to. Uh, that, uh, other questions? No, Don Pickley? Yes, sir. You're a Cubs fan. I'm going to forgive you for that. <laughs> yes. Well, um, I, I'm very fond of uh, a, a dictum from St. Thomas Aquinas, which I think Calvin and Jonathan Edwards would, in a qualified way, agree with. Okay? And that is that um, grace builds upon and presupposes nature. Now, exactly what the relationship is between grace and nature when nature is perfected, there I think uh, the Catholic theologians would have some differences with Edwards and Calvin. But that um, grace presupposes nature and builds with it, okay? I think they would agree. I mean, uh, people have no idea, but Calvin and, and Edwards both were um, very fervent lovers of the natural world. Uh, I would say to these, these Christian colleges that um, you may have the theology component of your um, curriculum well-established, but if you are not... Um, allowing that to be the integrative force in building the imaginations of, of your uh, young people. That is, if, 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 you are, if you say everything is going to, every, the Christian character of the college is going to be carried by the theology part. Um, the English classes can go hand. Uh, then you, you failed. Okay? Um, the, the whole thing has to be that doesn't mean that the theologians get to direct what everybody is doing in their old classes, but that even the English professors understand that their aim is ultimately a transcendent one. Okay? Um, it's, it's got to permeate 
the whole without destroying the um, individual character of each discipline, if that makes any sense. Uh, so it, it, in your English classes really should be quite different from um, what are now English classes at the University of Michigan. And if they're not, then you, you, you've blown it, I think. And that goes with other classes, uh, classes in art and history and so on. Um, more questions? No Dante questions? No Milton questions? Some of you got, yes, sir. Do you have that sense of wonder? Good. You know, um, the wonder is natural to us. It shouldn't really be difficult to preserve, but in our time it is difficult. Not because it itself is weak, but because there are threats to it from all sides. Um, I would suggest to such a person that... Uh, and you may laugh at this, but I don't care, um, that you remain chaste because the most glorious thing, the most wondrous thing in your immediate experience um, will be the beauty and the mystery of the opposite sex. And uh, sins against chastity will scorch that. Um, and inevitably it does so. I don't care. And what, how many self-deceptions you may engage in. It will turn yourself and the other person into utilitarian means for pleasure. Um, it must necessarily do that. And then the opposite sex ceases to be an object of wonder. It's something to dominate, to use. Um, don't lose that. Okay? That will be constantly threatened. And otherwise, seek out people who are in love with goodness. Okay. Um, if you have a professor, if you have some professor who uh, speaks like someone who's been divorced three times, who sees young people in love and says, well, duckies, I understand that. I went through that once. Uh, you're getting married, are you? <laughs> well, it'll last a little while. Good luck. There's no point uh, hanging around that person. Okay? You're paying a lot of money to go to college, right? It's a waste of your time. It's a waste of your time and money. Just run, okay? No way. Um, if, if you enter a class and you, you say, this is, well, this is a class in 19th century French literature, and the class seems not to be in the first week about 19th century French literature, but about 21st century French politics, or American politics. It's just, um, do what Jesus recommends for the disciples, okay? So they don't have all the time in the world. I mean, you're not going to live to be a thousand years old. Um, just, there's no peace in that place. Just wipe the, shake the dust from off your feet, go someplace else, okay? Um... And uh, your friends, too. I understand that you sometimes make friends with your roommates, and the roommates are, you know, a mixed bag. And 
Very often in college, you become friends with people that you don't like. Um, that's all right, okay? But uh, be the leaven in their lump instead of their lump smothering your leaven, okay? Um, you can't, you should not run away from them, but be shrewd there, okay? But as for the professors in the classes, um, they, they, to Indiana with them, okay? <laughs> uh, or they can be consigned to Lake Erie or someplace. Other questions? Yes, sir. Well, um, the, the, the burden really should not be upon you, okay? If the burden is upon you, then you have to take up that burden. But, uh, well, let, let me just let me give you a little bit of the story of my school. It won't take too long. In 1971, uh, Providence College um, it began what was then experimental, but has lasted till this day. Um, that is this two-year-long program in Western civilization, development of Western civilization. All the freshmen and all the sophomores have to take it's four semesters. The honor students right now, they take five hours a week for two years. The other students, four hours a week for two years. It's a little bit different. They had been doing that for honor students. At that time, the honor students were maybe like 15 students out of the class. 15 students, 15 freshmen, 15 sophomores. They had been doing that since 1958. And it had worked. It, they, honor students loved it. And so they said, we want to give to all of the students the benefits that the honor students have been receiving. Now, when they were doing that, it was in the teeth of what all the other schools were doing at that same time because all the other schools were dumping their curriculum, right? There's a little um, four-year community college on the opposite side of the city from us at Providence. Um, it's named after a color in the Crayola crayon. Oh, brown, yeah, brown. <laughs> um, brown University ditched its entire curriculum at that same time, okay? They had a classic curriculum. They threw it all out. They had nothing. To this day, they have nothing. Uh, and the teachers at Providence College, some Dominicans, but also some laymen who were committed to the classical heritage, they said, we don't want that. So instead, they revised the curriculum to build this program. It required an enormous uh, commitment and redirection of faculty energy. Because now instead of just dealing with 15 freshmen and 15 sophomores, at that time it would have been... Uh, 600 freshmen and 600 sophomores. Now it's 1,000 freshmen and 1,000 sophomores. So you've got 2,000 students at any one time at Providence College who are in this program. So we're talking about dozens of faculty members committed to teach with one another. Because it's not just you've got one professor over there and he's got a section, another professor over there. They teach in teams of three, 
um, two, three, and four, right? Um, they did that. And um, of course, everybody for a decade or so thought that they were stupid. And a lot of the professors at Providence College, especially in, at my school, they, the opponents came from the social sciences. They hated it. They just hated it. They've been trying to destroy it for, you know, 40 years now, more than 40 years. Um, but it has survived, and now we find other schools sending delegates to us saying, uh, what do you do here, and how does it work? Right. So um, maybe, maybe, I'll send you our syllabus. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe, um, maybe that's something for uh, faculty at, at, uh, uh, at your college here to consider. I mean, not, not identical to our program, but maybe something of that order, so that you don't have to figure it out, because you shouldn't have to figure it out. And also, if you figure it out for yourself, I mean, you're missing something because you're not in conversation with uh, 10, 11 other students at the same time in your section who are reading Crime and Punishment together. And you should be in conversation. Right? I can give you our syllabus. <laughs> yes, sir. Oh, Jared. What's that? One more question. Um, is there another question? Yes, ma'am. Terrific. And, um, Were you there last night? Well, you know what you could say? In a nutshell, you could say, it's the education that was presumed for everybody in the English-speaking world before about 1920. All right? That's what it is. Uh, and that, that covers a wide range, right? I mean, that goes from Harvard and Oxford down to a little schoolhouse out in the middle of nowhere in South Dakota. But basically, that's it. It, 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 was, it was considered that if, to be really educated, you had to be educated in humanities and liberal arts. You had, you had to have facility with numbers. And sure, you should know about the physical world. Um, but really, you ought to be able to read good works of literature, to, to know the history of your country, to be able to write decent English. Um, this is, that's just, that wasn't the classical education. That was just education, right? Classical education meant that you were studying Greek at age 11. This was just education. Um, if, if they press you further, then you might want to pick up any textbook, uh, any literature or language textbook um, or history textbook produced before 1920 and say, and it doesn't matter if it's 10-year-olds, 18-year-olds, hardly matters. Get the textbook, say, this is what it is. Look at that book. Um, I hang around uh, antique stores and junk shops a lot. And uh, uh, we got a collection of about 200 old textbooks at my house. And it, it, it crushes you to look at them. 
fact. Um, I found an arithmetic book in Nova Scotia, and it was scrawled all over with the children's signatures and their grades. So it could be dated, and it could be sent to a certain, tied to a certain person in a certain grade, in a certain year, a certain place in Nova Scotia. The place is like East Podunk, right? With maybe 200 people, basically a farm place out in the sticks. And this little girl, Ruby, somebody or other, age nine, I believe, was doing problems that involved figuring out what profit you would make if you sold your dividend on stock at a certain price that you had purchased a year and a half before. Your college students couldn't answer that problem. There's a problem in higher arithmetic. Then I was in, this summer I was in Nova Scotia. I didn't tell Nova Scotia. We were always in Nova Scotia over the summer. We were in Prince Edward Island. You know, Anne of Green Gables territory, right? So we were, we were out in the middle of, I mean, first of all, Prince Edward Island is the sticks. And we were in the sticks of the sticks. Uh, just a little village that now is a living museum out in the middle of nowhere, potato farms. And uh, they had a schoolhouse there. It's a one-room schoolhouse that ceased operation in 1969. So the lady who was behind the counter at the general store, she was one of the last graduates of this little schoolhouse. It began operation in 1895. It was built then. So um, they have, you know, they've cleaned it up, and they've found... Uh, samples of the children's work in the first class of students in that little place in 1895. Okay? And they have pinned them to the wall. And these are not reproductions or anything like that. They're the actual article. You can tell because the kids have, it's kid handwriting. You know? It's one wall there, uh, a kid, the, 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 the uh, assignment was to take these two verses of a religious poem and identify the grammatical function of each word in the verse, not just say, this is a noun, which my students cannot do, by the way. Okay? They cannot consistently identify nouns and verbs and adjectives. They're not, uh, adverb is, is like, uh, you know, organic chemistry for them. Because <laughs> um, it's never been taught, it's never been taught. Uh, I, but to, to say, well, okay, this is this is uh, uh, house. This is the uh, this is uh, 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 neuter gender um, singular. It's in the nominative case. It is the subject of the predicate. La da 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 da. And with each word, so take a few page and a half. On the other side of the uh, the the schoolhouse, there was another piece of paper right into the wall, and it was a complete declension of the Greek noun doulos, meaning servant. Um, nominative, genitive, dative, accusative, singular, plural, right? Evocative, too, singular, plural, um, in Greek characters. So it's clear to me, I think, that they were um, teaching these kids New Testament Greek. That's in the middle of nowhere, okay? You know, I think those kids probably read some really good books, and they sang some songs, and 
they learned about the geography of their wonderful far-flung country, Canada. Uh, I think that they were made more human by that place. That's your, you know, there's your classical education. It was just an education. What do you, what do you say? You know, you pick up good books and read them. And talk to, then come and talk to me. Um, what do they have as an alternative? The Hunger Games? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so, uh, I, 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 there was supposed to be only one more question, uh, so, um, that it? <laughs>